Welcome to the Gold Standard. My name is Braden Gall, and you can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. And my name is Michael Gallagher with Nashville Hockey Now, and you can follow me on Twitter or X, whatever whatever we're calling it, at MG Sports underscore. Do, are you are you an X guy or are you a Twitter guy? Which which no, team? It, are you? It, it, it's Twitter. It'll always be Twitter. I don't, I'm not yeah. calling it X. I don't post and repost. I tweet and retweet. Um, that I completely agree. Of course, uh, lots of stuff on the show today. Uh, first of all, great episode last week between you and Gover. Special thanks to Gover for jumping in. I had some vacation there, uh, and we do appreciate him jumping in. Uh, if you want to listen to a Really awesome conversation about the Preds farm system. You can also read about it, of course, on Nashville Hockey Now. But you guys had a great conversation about the top 10 and top 20 prospects in the farm system, which, by the way, is the best I've ever seen it. Um, and so I'll, I'll have a, a quick thought on that episode. But if you want to go check that out, please go do. Um, you guys were awesome last week on the show. Do appreciate Gover for hanging out. Um, we're going to start the process. And you guys are doing this at Nashville, Nashville Hockey Now uh, as well. We're going to start to sort of take a longer look at David Poyle and evaluate David Poyle in his 25 years as the only general manager in franchise history. This we we could probably do this exercise like 20 years from now, and it might be different. Um, (laughs) But you guys, you guys have like a whole thing planned. You're going to look at uh, all the trades, positive, the best trades, the worst trades, the best draft classes, the worst draft classes. You're going to look at draft picks, best and worst free agent signings, best and worst. And then you guys are going to have like an entire encapsulation of David Poyle. And I do, we're going to get into this in just a second, but how to evaluate David Poyle and how does time affect our evaluation of David Poyle, I think are the starting points to this conversation. So we'll have that uh, coming up a little bit later on in the show today. That's going to be the main focus of is David Poyle and and how to evaluate him. And then we'll start by looking at the trades. Um, But of course, the gold standard is a podcast about the national predators on the 440 sports network. And it is, Brought to you by Jaspers. Attaboy. Attaboy. I, I apologize to Jaspers. J- Gover and I got carried away in the, the prospect talk last week. We are we didn't do any live reads, but we did plug it twice, once at the beginning and once at the end. And, and Gover seems to be a real big fan of the burger, which I like because I'm also a big fan of the burger. So yep. Yep. it wasn't it wasn't your standard let's hype up Jaspers. I apologize for that, but Gover, I think, has been three times. I've only been twice. So I've just come to the conclusion that everybody in Nashville has gone to Jasper's more than I have, and I need to fix that. <laughs> you do need to fix that. Uh, here's the bottom line. Trade in your regular, average, boring, garbage sports bar for the next evolution of the sports bar. It would be a move that David Poyle would have made before 2019. <laughs> and it probably would have been on his uh, five best pre- uh, trades in the David Poyle era, too. That's what I'm saying, but it would have happened before like 2018. Like uh, all the good stuff happened before 2018, <laughs> uh, with the exception of one. We'll get to that one, of course, uh, coming up. But again, y- you want a place to go? You guys, I mean, you guys know the drill. Like the game room is will, is free, and we'll take care of your children. That that's not a promise by them. I'm just promising that. Um, my my kids <laughs> love the game room, and of course, the food is great. Great place for meetings during lunch. Uh, perfectly located, centrally located to a lot of different offices. So if you're down on West End, it's right there on Vander near Vanderbilt. Free parking. You don't even have to go into that Broadway trash garbage, you know, construction thing right there. You just get off the interstate and go towards Vanderbilt. It takes you two seconds. You're into the parking lot. You park for free. You're into the restaurant, and you got a great meal. Great place to watch the game. A game room. A grab and go market. You can take some cheesecake home with you. It's a great place to go. So go check out Jasper's, folks, um, and all their other. Uh, sister restaurants, of course, Four Top Hospitality, 
Amerigo, Etch, etc., Char, all great places. My wife and I love all of them. We frequent all of them pretty pretty routinely. <laughs> so so go check them out. Um, all right. So quickly, before we get into our, our the beginnings of a David Poyle evaluation conversation, which could be literally 10 years, um, I, I think, or maybe never ending, potentially. I, I quickly, if you are, if you listen to last week or following along, NashvilleHockeyNow.com, your prospect rankings, Joachim Kemmel, number one, Yaroslav Askarov, number two, Luke Evangelista, number three, Matthew Wood, number four, Tanner Molendyke, number five, Philip Tomasino, number six. Uh, you've got Zachary LaRue, number seven, Fedor Svechkov, number eight, Reed Schaefer, Schaefer. Uh, number nine, uh, that, that is for a very small collection of people that get that joke. I think, um, that's like for diehard college football fans from like 2007. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Spencer Stassing, number 10 is your defenseman. You've got Ufko and Afanasiev at 11 and 12. I'll give you, a, I, I really don't have a major problem with your list at all in any way, shape or form. I would have Kemmel, Askarov and Evangelista in the top three as well. I think you can make the case that Askarov is number one. And I think you could, I think that's fair if you're the top goaltending prospect in the world that you're probably better than Joachim Kennel. But as you made the case with Gover last week that that you just think Kemmel is just off the charts, like best forward prospect this team has had in, <laughs> in basically a long, long, long time. So I I could see Ask Askarov being number one, but I have I have no issues with your top three. Yeah, I, I just after watching more film of Kemmel since we recorded that episode. I'm just really high on the kid. I think he's going to be what Ellie Tolvanen was supposed to be. And I think he's just, I think he has the potential to be, obviously this could change with, you know, the more drafts Barry Trotz gets, but I think he has the potential to be right now out of everyone that's been drafted up until this point, the best forward prospect that has been drafted will be developed and is a homegrown forward prospect for the predators. And I didn't, I didn't put a scar of number one. It, I went back and forth on that. I, kind of debated it a little bit, but ultimately I just feel like the more I, I read more scouting reports and stuff and the more people I talk to Jesper Wallstedt from Minnesota wild, I feel like he he's, he's, and it's like splitting hairs. I feel like he's just a notch above a scar off in terms of being the best goalie prospect in the NHL. Um, so that's why I have a scar of his too. But I, again, it, it's, it's like splitting hairs trying to pick between those two. But yeah. I, I think when you go offensive goaltending, we already know this, 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 franchise can develop goaltenders i want to see if they can develop an offensive forward with elite skills like Kemmel. so that's why i put him at one uh so you have matthew wood four molendyke five thomasino six this is the only place i think i'd really uh, maybe change some things i, I got uh, some heat for this i did well oh i'm interested which uh, uh for okay so let me give you mine and see if it matches up with the heat <laughs> okay so i think i think i'm gonna catch heat for mine honestly i would have tanner molendyke at four I, I you, wow. but, but like you know how obsessed I am with him. Like I th I think <laughs> I, I it's attitude, it's personality, it's skating, it's speed, it's hands, it's everything. He is uh, there is a there's a when you when you get to actually talk to these guys, like so many of them the, one of the reasons the NHL draft is so weird and and doesn't get a ton of run. Like people aren't into it, right? The way they're into the NFL draft or whatever, even the baseball draft, which is similar because they don't they don't contribute for very long. But to, to, there's not you talk to all these kids and not many of them are ready to even answer questions in front of the media. And th 
that is not his thing. <laughs> he can do Tanner Molenite can do it. He is confident he, in his own abilities. He's had media training at some point. He ha- but he's confident in his own abilities. He knows exactly what he brings to the table. He knows what he's good at. He knows how to he do it. He called out Connor McDavid in his opening press yeah. conference, too. I mean, the kid oozes confidence. So it's not just that the film is extraordinary. Like it, it really yeah. is. So I'm I I might be overvaluing, but I think they pinpointed their guy with their second pick in the first round. They went a little early on a guy that might have been a little bit lower in the draft big boards, but also some people who love him say might be the best defenseman in the draft. So I'm going to go Tanner Molendike four. I get it. If you want to throw some shade at me and some heat at me, I get it. That's fine. I would have Tomasino at five and I'd have Matthew Wood at six. And when you do prospect rankings, some of the ranking is timing, not a lot of it, but some of it is. Matthew Wood's upside might be top two or three in this entire farm system. And three years ago, he might be number one. And even as an 18-year-old right out or a, a 19-year-old right out of out of out of college, he's gonna go back to UConn. I would have he might have a higher ceiling than almost all these other guys. But we know there's it's going to take time. So how do you evaluate? How much time do you bake into your rankings? I, I might be doing that, and maybe that's not right. When you do baseball prospect rankings, do they do time? Sometimes you do. Like sometimes the number one player is an 18 year old who just got drafted, and sometimes the number one player is the AAA guy who's like already ready to contribute right away. So if you're using time as part of the evaluation, I would have Matthew Wood down a notch or two. I think Molendike moves faster through the system. I think Tomasino obviously is is much much further ahead. I almost toyed with Zach LaRue being at six and Matthew Wood at seven. Uh, and then I would have uh, Fedor Shvechkov at, at eight as well. And then the rest of it, I I agree. I do think it's interesting that you have Schaefer in the top 10, though, because he was kind of an add-in to a trade this year. And I think it's interesting that you put him as high as you did. So, Yeah, I mean, a lot of these guys, and look, it's some of them are interchangeable. I'm not saying there's a big gap between four, five, and six. I mean, it, it, it's just personal preference for for some of this stuff too. But my, at least my thinking was based off of what of, off of your logic of time it takes them to get to the NHL. Yes, I agree. Tanner Molendike will probably be in the NHL not this year, but I wouldn't rule it out next year. And I'm not saying he'll be a full timer, but I think he will be in the NHL within two to three years. Matthew Wood, it's probably going to be three years before you see him. Somewhere in the lineup. So, and again, and I and I get that. I didn't really factor that in too much. I base this purely off of upside potential. What were they drafted for? And what is their, what are the chances they can reach that potential? I put Matthew Wood at four because he could be that big power forward. We saw as a freshman, he led the UConn Huskies in scoring as a 17-year-old, the youngest player in college hockey. And, and I do have some did get some uh, confirmation that he he should be switching to center next year. I think that plays a little bit of factor factors okay. into this a little bit as okay. well. He played left wing this year, um, but when he before he got to UConn when he was playing juniors and stuff, he was he was a center. So I think the Predators took him because of that versatility because they do need a number one center. I think that's the goal. Um, but I think it, and he said he wants to be the next Tage Thompson. He models his game after him. Obviously the UConn connection. If he can fulfill that potential. I like him better as a prospect than Tanner Mullendyke. However, right now, I like Mullendyke more than Wood because he just right. fits this system perfectly. I do think he'll be a fast riser. I do think he fits everything the Predators want. And then Philip Tomasino and Gold. So is that the heat that you got was having Tomasino so low? Yeah. So, well, not even that. I had about half the people that had a problem with this asked me why I'm still considering Tomasino a prospect, which is fair. <laughs> And then the other half said, why is he six? They they thought he should have been four after Evangelista. I'm not saying you're wrong on either account, 
because he did play a full NHL season and it feels wrong to include him in the prospect rankings. But one, the the athletic still considers him a prospect. So I will too. And number two, he spent most of the year last year playing in the AHL. I I know we're in a little bit of a gray area there. I'm not saying that he's bad by any means, but I I did these rankings based off of projections as a prospect. We know what Tomasino kind of is and what he can be. We don't really know that much about Wooden Molendijk, so I think their upside and their their ceiling as prospects are higher than what Tomasino's is right now. However, I do think Tomasino's going to be a good player in the NHL when he gets there, which will probably be this year. And to your yeah. point on on Reed Schaefer, I, I even said that a lot of people thought he was an afterthought. He was just kind of a throw in in the in the Matthias Ekholm trade. But the last two years for the Seattle wow words are hard today for the <laughs> Seattle Thunderbirds. He had 32 goals and 58 points two seasons ago, and 28 goals and 61 points this season. He's been a he's been better than a point per game player both of those two years. He's kind of gritty. He's physical. He can score. He can go to the front of the net. He kind of does all the things that I feel like John Hines was looking for in some of the prospects that he was wanting. Um, he and Zachary Larue kind of remind me of their 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 styles are a little bit similar, but I I, I don't want to underestimate him. I think he could be. I think he could be a Yakov Trenin, Tanner Janot type player with a with a higher upside as a scorer just because he is willing to go and do what Victor Arvidsson did basically go to the front of that stand there and wait for a puck. Yeah. So I put him in there because I think he's a little bit underrated. Yeah, and I, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, two defensemen, uh, Molendyke and Stasny in your top ten. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this again. The episode last week, you guys were were better. Was great there. I did. I the Tomasino debate is fascinating because the the rules in the NHL are. If you play 25 games in a season, you lose your rookie status. Yeah, so that's, your, that's your rookie year. Or if you play at least six games in back-to-back seasons. And no matter how you slice it, Philip Tomasino is in his third year yeah. <laughs> uh, this season. He played 76 games two years ago, so that would have been his rookie season. He played 31 last year. That would have been his rookie season. So it's kind of weird to be like, oh, yeah, you're in the AHL the entire year. And to feel like you're still a prospect. But like, are you? So I understand. I understand yeah. the. I actually understand the argument. So, uh, all right. I just wanted to say, great job. You guys did a great job, uh, and I don't really disagree with too much. I probably have a scare off number. A scar off number one. And yes, I acknowledge that I might be higher on Tanner Molendyke than everybody else. Um, but basically, our top eight's about the same. And then keep an eye on Reed Schaefer. I think that was an interesting one. Okay, go to Jasper's. So I think the the before we get into the, like the worst trades and the best trades of the David Poyle era and sort of evaluating his ability to make trades, I think it's important to start with. A couple of different things, like how to evaluate David Poyle is important. And I think there's two very distinct times in which you have to evaluate David Poyle. One is as an expansion general manager in a in, a, in an era of hockey that was governed with different rules. <laughs> and then there is a post-expansion era with new rules of, of NHL hockey. I guess my first question is, do you use the 2017 cup run as the line of demarcation or is it like one of the strike years? Like, where is it that you think this team went? Because because the expansion rules today are so different. You can accomplish a lot more. See Vegas, see Seattle. But I think I think David Poyle specifically in 1998 was dealing a, a much harder hand to expand in that time and through that window with a strike and a lockout and, and the style of hockey that was being played, I just think it was a lot harder to build a team from scratch at that time. Where, where's the line of demarcation for you where you start to evaluate David Poyle as competing for championships versus building a franchise? Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely um, 
it's tough to, I don't know, basically is what I'm trying to say. I don't know, because <laughs> it could be, it could be the year there was the lockout. It could be up until the, the cup run. It, I mean, it could be a bunch of different things to take into. There could be a bunch of different things to take into account here. And I mean, look, David Poyle had a much harder job when he took, when he took over this job as a Predators GM, he's hired in 1997. The first season was in 98. He wasn't given the expansion rules that the Seattle Kraken and the Vegas Golden Knights were, where he's basically given a, a cup contending team the first, you know, one or two years of, of existence. He had to build a team. And I mean, look, we're, we're talking about he was making the first ever draft pick in team history in a draft that was so scarce on talent that David Leguan was the number two overall selection. And that's not a knock on David Leguan. He was a fine player, but he should not have been the number two overall pick. He should not have been a top line center. I mean, he he had David Poyle had to build a team. Basically, I don't want to say he's had he had the hardest job of any expansion GM, but one of the hardest jobs of any expansion GM building around David Leguan kind of going out and piecing together a team that they knew were going to be bad for a while. And it took them what it was one, two, three, four, five, there's six seasons when they finally got up to 90 points, they were in the 60, 70, 80 range. And it took them six seasons before they finally had a team that wasn't bad. And then what happened the year after that lockout. So, I mean, it's looking at all this, there's, there's a lot of context to put in when you're evaluating David Poyle, but I will say, I think he did the best with what he had because I don't say the deck, the deck was stacked against him, but there was a lot going on. There was a lot he had to deal with. If he would have been handed rules like the Vegas Golden Knights have, David Poyle probably would have retired with a Stanley Cup. <laughs> Their first winning record, of course, was that same. That's the first time they had a winning record was 0304. They, yeah. the, they make the playoffs. And then, of course, there's no season the next year. I, so here's here's I, I think every, I agree with everything you said. I, I think the idea that we had Pete Weber and Terry Crisp trying to teach people in in Nashville, what icing is and what two line passes are. That's how I learned was from Pete and Terry. And, and that they were down in like cool Springs mall, giving away tickets to people. I think that context is pretty important. And so here's, here's my line. Here's the line I would put on, on, on evaluating David Poyle. The day they hired Peter Laviolette, that's the line I would draw. And I would say you, you rolled with Barry, ironically, Barry trots, of course, he was the guy for almost 20 years or, or whatever it was, however many seasons it was. And that, that was the, the building era. It was you and Barry Trotz building it. And it's not just the franchise. It's not just the farm system. It's literally the arena. It's the fan base. It's the understanding of hockey. It's the knowledge of the game. It's the tie to the fans. It's raising six-year-olds in 1998 and 99 to become adults in 2012 and 13 that actually support the team. I, I say, to me, it when you fired Barry Trotz, so to speak, and you hire Peter Laviolette, the day you hire Peter Laviolette, to me, is the time that I evaluate David Poyle in a different way. That is, you've hired a guy who's been to a cup final, who's won a championship. You've moved on from the original got- team that built this franchise. To me, that's the line of demarcation. and so. You also have to take into account, too, that was the first time that Poyle really had to make a concession that his way wasn't working. Right. He had to he had to basically scrap everything he had done, which he built the team on great goaltending, great defense and just enough offense to get by and, and win every other game here or there. This is this is the first time you had to go out and get an offensive minded head coach and really go out and acquire offensive minded players to fit that offensive minded head coach's system. And, and again, you win your first two playoff series in, in 2011 and 2012. You know, then there's the then you have the strike sorting season right in 2013, right? And and there's rule changes. So like to me, it's 
The next year, Barry Trotz comes back, and that's his final year. And then the next year in 2015 is Peter Laviolette. And so to me, if you want to talk lockout and rule changes and salary cap and you know, learning how to be a playoff franchise and teaching people how to understand the game, like that is to me Barry Trotz. And after Barry Trotz, post BT, you know, like like that's the line for me. So that's that's my first point. My second point is is that I think with time, the evaluation of David Poyle is going to change significantly in both eras, in in the building era and in the you know compete era, whatever you want to call them. And I'm going to use an example here, and you might have some others that you might want to throw out there. Like uh, the Buffalo Bills going to four straight Super Bowls is one of the most unbelievable accomplishments in the history of sports. How did we feel about it when it was happening? It was viewed as a failure. It was viewed as they couldn't do it. They couldn't win it. They couldn't. They, Jim Kelly's not good enough, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Like it was viewed as like, oh, these bills are never going to get it done. I think today, 20, I guess almost 30 years, 30 years later, man, we're getting old. We we look back at a team going to four straight Super Bowls, regardless of outcome, and we appreciate how incredibly difficult that was and what they actually did accomplish. And again, one missed field goal away from having a, a ring there. I'm a Nick. I was raised a Knicks fan. I grew up loving Patrick Ewing is my favorite player of all time. I grew up largely th- believing in in like us as the Knicks being a failure. <laughs> Like the Knicks are a failure. Ewing is a failure. John Starks is a failure. We were a failure. We didn't win the ring. Like I, you know, I'm a Packers fan. Same thing with Favre. He didn't get to a second Super Bowl. Same thing with Rodgers. Didn't get to a second Super Bowl. I think with time, I look back now and I go, Patrick Ewing was one of the greatest players of his generation. You know, I think I think that there's a a different way to look at David. I think we're going to look at David Poyle's career long term, and he will go down as one of the greatest general managers of all time. And and it's because he chose to do a very difficult thing here in Nashville, and he actually did it pretty damn well. <laughs> like we're going to get into the nitpicking here of what's right and what's wrong. Did he do it too long? Should he have stepped away earlier? We can get into all of that, and that's fair today. When he decided to step down, and twenty years from now, we can debate that. We'll just never know. I could argue, he, you know, there was a there's a pretty, you know, after about twenty sixteen. <laughs> After he built the team that went on the cup run, you know, you not a whole lot of elite stuff happening. <laughs> so it, there's certainly a debate there, Michael. But uh, to me, I, I think we have to acknowledge that we're still it's the wounds are still very fresh. Yeah. And I think when fans remember David Poyle and, and again, this this could change if if Joachim Kemmel turns into Leon Dreisaitl and. Ascaro turns into Carey Price, and and a lot of these guys start hitting, and they build a team. David Poyle, I think, will get credit for being the one that, to draft them because he's he's the guy that went through the evaluation process and ultimately was had the final call on all this. But I think when fans remember David Poyle, there will be the the pre 2016 17 David Poyle and the post 2016 17 David Poyle, and a lot of the season ticket holders and the diehards and the day one fans, I think, have a, a favorable view view of David Poyle. Because they take everything he did as a whole. I think a lot of the newer fans, and I'm not picking on newer fans, certainly it's not your fault if you just started watching Predators hockey in 2019 and and became a fan. But I think a lot of the newer fans, I'm not going to call them bandwagoners, but the newer kind of the casual fans who were converted within the last five years. I think those people will remember David Poyle in more of a negative context because the 
the fan base was spoiled with that cup final run. They got a taste of the good life and they wanted to get back there. And every move David Poyle made after that was in service of getting back there. It's just he wasn't pressing the right buttons, whereas before that cup run, he was pressing the right buttons. David Poyle could do no wrong. Every trade he made, he was fleecing GMs. It got to a point where the running joke was if David Poyle was calling you with a trade deadline, don't answer the phone because it was getting to the point where he was just fleecing other GMs in these trades. After the 2017 cup run, I think is when David Poyle and I don't think he was doing anything differently. I think it was just the, the caliber player that he was trying to acquire and the players he was trying to build his team around. Just He just didn't know how to use them, and the coaching staff just didn't know how to use them. I think that is the dividing line on, on how he'll be remembered is before the cup run and after, which is sad if you think about it because he did a lot of good before the cup run, and you think of everything that the Predators have, all the banners that they have, make banner jokes if you want, but all the, all the everything that they have is because of what David Poyle did. So it's... I feel bad for him, but I remember when he had his press conference when he announced Barry Trotz was you know, taking over for him and stuff. And kind of, I asked him about that, and he he got a little like his lip got bottom lip got a little flustered, and he was like, "You know what? I would have loved to have won a Stanley Cup, but that doesn't that that's not going to dictate my legacy." He's like, "My resume speaks for itself," and I, I had a boxing coach that always told me that. Um, I forget, I'll probably butcher the phrase, but. Insecurities are loud, but confidence is quiet. And that told me all I need to know about David Poyle. Yes, I would have loved to win a Stanley Cup, but you know what? That doesn't dictate my legacy. And I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah, and and it's funny. Like I, I think about marquee memories, if you're a Predators fan, old and new. And I agree with you. There's a lot like we're gonna we're about to look at some of his best trades of his career and some of the worst trades of his career. And it's it it's it's pretty interesting that all five of the best trades maybe in his career, maybe the top six, top seven trades in his career all happened 2016 and earlier. If you look at all the, the a lot of the trades that, that Nashville Hockey Now has listed in the top five, uh, 2017, 2019, 2018, there was one in 07 that was pretty bad. We'll get to that one. <laughs> but, 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 tw- but 2019 on here as well. And frankly... Even the bad ones that we're going to discuss outside of the big one, which is number one with the bullet, they're all they're all kind of nitpicking, honestly. And I think you're right. People need to remember there was a time where we were just like, holy shit, don't deal with David Poyle if you're a GM. Just don't just don't even take the call because the biggest swings he took outside of the one big one, <laughs> the biggest swings he took worked out and led directly to a team that let that got to the cup. But also here here's the, and I I kind of got off track there. What's interesting is even in that period of time where you probably are right, that the, the newer fans view him in more of a negative way, perhaps maybe didn't step away early enough, maybe made some moves that were a little too ambitious that didn't work out. Even then you had the president's trophy and the division championship. Only two times that's happened in franchise history and the greatest goal scoring season with Matt Duchesne and Philip Forsberg. That's three separate years. They, they are largely considered disappointments from a team perspective in the postseason. But those are also three seasons that fans had a lot of joy. They they had a lot of memories. They have a lot of things in those seasons that that they accomplished as a team that happened after 2017. And and even those teams were put together by David Poyle before 2017 to some degree. Yeah. I mean, Rene winning uh, the Vezina, yeah. You know, yeah, winning the Norris. Like there were really good moments after the 2017 Cup run. It's just fans got spoiled. They got a taste of what it was like to be a, a true Cup contending team, and and and. Ever since they got to there, it's the fan base has had this attitude of it's Stanley Cup final or bust. 
And unless yeah. you're the, the Boston Bruins or the Detroit Red Wings, well, not the Red Wings now, but the Red Wings of the past or the Penguins, like you can't have that that mentality because teams just don't do that. Well, you need to have Patrick Kane's and Jonathan Taves and Duncan Keith's on your roster. Like you got to have those. You've got the Roman you need to Yossi. have them, but you don't need to do what they did to get those players. Oh, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, all right. So let's do the let's do the bad trades here first, because honestly, like I, I think there's one with a bullet. And ironically enough, it happens before the cup run. <laughs> but it does sort of lead to like the entire end of the David Poyle era, even though it again, immediately following the trade, they go to the cup. The next year they win the president's trophy and the next year they win the division and, and they have a Vezina and Norris. And you mentioned it. The number one trade is, of course, Sam Girard, a second round pick and Kamenev to Colorado in the three team deal to acquire Kyle Turris because he because Matt Duchesne was out there thirst trapping and he could and he was so thirsty for Matt Duchesne that he couldn't get him. They needed another center. He went and got Kyle Turris sick, overpaid him six years, thirty six million dollars. Kyle Turris is fine for a couple of months and then is largely a, a you know, an anchor around the neck of the franchise. I, that is number one with the bullet because of, of what it leads to and how bad it worked out. I, I think the other trades that are on this list and again, follow along Nashville hockey. Now Kevin Fiala for, for me, Kyle Grandland. Okay. Bad trade maybe, but not the worst. I do think in 2007 when he traded chemo team and, 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 uh, and Scott Hartnell, Scott Hartnell who both went on to play in Stanley cups and then Scott Hartnell played long enough to come back 10 years later yeah. or 12 years later, 10 years later, I guess. Yeah. And then teaming and played, I think for two cup teams, I think not championship teams, but played in finals and then played like seven more years. You had 17 seasons that you gave up for a first round pick that you already had traded to Philadelphia. I, that yeah. one, that one is not a good trade, but trading a first round pick for Ryan Hartman. Okay. Maybe it's a little risky, but I, I see now what Ryan Hartman could have been turning around and trading Ryan Hartman for Wayne Simmons, which is listed at number five on this. Like that's not even a, I don't even think that's a bad trade at all. So like, I, I again, like you, there's not a lot on here that like truly ruined the franchise. There's the one trade at the top of the list. The other ones, maybe he's chasing something. Fiala give, gave up on Fiala early, but like I would put the Ryan Ellis trade like at the top on, in the top five, <laughs> you know? So we'll get to the good trades in a second, but like, Honestly, there's only one that really truly stands out to me as a negative in, in 25 years. Yeah, and, and Clay, Clay Brewer, uh, is my writer who wrote this. We uh we talked about this a little bit, texting back and forth that other than the terrorist trade, there isn't really a gl- any other glaring ones that are like, oh man, that set the franchise back. And and I get it, it's kind of like nitpicking at what you want to do with some of these trades. Like, I get it. Like oil trading for Wayne Simmons probably wasn't that terrible in the scheme of things. I mean if I had written this list, I would have probably put the Kevin Klein trade for Michael Delzato ahead of that trade, just because Kevin Klein was your steady Eddie, really good number two or number three second pairing defenseman, and Michael Delzato flamed out after like twenty something games here. But <laughs> I mean, there's there's a bunch of trades, the Cody France and Mike Santarelli trade uh, from a couple years ago. Like there's there's other ones you could put up in here. And again, like I gave this to Clay, this was his assignment. He did, I think he did really well. And if you don't agree with this list, that is okay. Yeah. Give us feedback. Tell us why you think something else should be ahead of it. Just, just don't be a dick when you do it. That, that's my only rule. Don't be a dick. You can disagree with us, and you might have a really valid point to where you'd be like, you know what? We didn't consider that. This is why we do this stuff. It's fun to engage people with this. And like you said, some of these things probably aren't that bad. Number three, for instance, like it, Ryan Hartman, was he worth a first-round pick? No. But at the time, David Boyle, no one really knew that. And 
they gave up Victor Eitzel, I believe it was, and uh, who else? Two picks, two picks. It was a first and a fourth, and then a player, yeah, Eitzel for Hartman. Now, what's interesting is Ryan Hartman was, uh, I believe, a first round. I think he was a first round pick by Chicago, so thirtieth overall. Uh, he he's he scored thirty goals two years ago. Now, yeah. is he is he a great player? No, is he worth a first round pick? Probably not. But what he saw in him. By the way, he had 19 goals as a 22-year-old the year before as a first-round draft pick. So that's what David Poyle saw. And frankly, Minnesota is the only team that's maximized it so far. He's been solid for them the last two seasons. Not great, but he had one good year. But that's what he saw in him. And you took a chance on a team that was trying to win a cup. So, yeah, you know. And, and, and look, like that may not have been the best trade, but you look at the back end of that. They got, they got what was it, a fourth or fifth-round pick, and they took Spencer Stastny with it, who might be an NHL defenseman. So, again... A lot of these is just kind of nitpicking and stuff. The Kevin Fiala for Granlin one looks bad now because we saw how bad Granlin was last year and we saw how good Kevin Fiala was when he went to Minnesota and now what he's doing in LA. And I think it was just kind of everyone had arrived to the same conclusion. Kevin Fiala had run his course in Nashville. It looks bad because you gave up, I don't know how old he was at the trade, what, 24, 25? 22, up, 22. 22. You gave up yeah. a really young player. Yeah. Who, who you took with the 11th overall pick, who was supposed to be Ellie Tolvanen before Ellie Tolvanen came. Like he was supposed to be this next great player. And for what it just wasn't happening here. Well, no, he, he, scored, no he, he scored 23 goals on that President's Cup team. President's, sorry, President, I don't know why I keep saying President's Cup. It's like a golf trophy. Um, he scored, he had 48 points as a 21 year old with 23 goals on that President's Trophy team. Yeah, but he was playing on he was playing on the second line. He was in a top six role. He was getting the minutes every night that he should have been getting. And he and it seemed like he was going to max out at a 25 goal, 50 point player. And when you take someone as high as you took him with all the expectations that were placed on him, you expect 30 goals and 65 points out of that kid. I don't know. It, I just, think this, it, it wasn't clicking. The, the coaching staff didn't know how to use him. Trading him to Minnesota when they did was the right call at that time. No, it, just, just, uh, it just so happened that he took off after that because he was surrounded by a coaching staff that knew how to use him properly. Oh, man. I, I, I don't think the 11th overall pick thing factors into a 21-year-old. Now, I, listen, I think you're right. You could argue Lavi didn't know how to do a lot of things. <laughs> he knows how to do a lot of things, and then he doesn't know how to do a lot of things. Uh, I, I would have the... Hartnell team in trade from 07 at number two. Uh, again, November 5th, 2017, the day that will live in infamy, <laughs> the, t- the Kyle Turris trade. I-, I do think it's a it's a bad trade. The Fiala for Granlund is bad, but it's not as bad because, I mean, Granlund had a 65-point season. He had 54 assists, I think, one year, 53 assists one year. He, he was a very steady player for this team. And sure, you know, they, they gave up upside and youth for a veteran who could play center. And Fiala, frankly, I was around Fiala a lot during those the 17, 18 seasons. And like he, you know, there were questions about like, um, is he going to grind 200 feet? Right. Which at the time we thought was important. But the upside was always there. Like the the rip, the, the goal scoring ability, the Tolvin in before Tolvin. Like it was always obvious. And so I think we all kind of knew that was going to bite them eventually. The dude has scored. I'm just doing math real quickly here. He has scored 99 goals in the last four seasons. So that's 25 a year. The Preds sure as hell could have used that the last four years. <laughs> yeah, but two of those two of those seasons, one was a 30 goal season and one was a 40 goal season. So, I mean, no, no, it's it it's it's 23, 20, 33, 23. It's consistently right there. He had 33 one year, which is big, but like it's he's been over 25 times in his career. 
He's he's 26 years old. He's scored 20 goals five times. I'm sorry. One was a one was a 33 goal season and an 84 85 point season. He had 72 points last year. That's what that's the production they were looking at him when they drafted yeah. him. No, that's it, true. It sucks for the Predators that he's he reached that potential in other places. Yep. No no question about it. All right. Let's get to the positive ones here. Well, before before we do that, uh, just quickly here, Michael, the 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 negative trades. I mean, by and large. As you kind of already alluded to, I think we need to end the conversation with. By and large, there's not a lot of bad bad marks on the resume here from for David David Poyle from a bad trade standpoint. There are plenty that we could, like we just did, argue about Fiala and Granlin, but yeah, the the only one that almost universally is agreed upon that is just bad and terrible and led to many bad things was giving up San Gerard and a second round pick. Which I mean, San Gerard's a really good player, but like it's not. It's even then not. It's more about. The investment in tourists, the thirty-six million, and then chasing the demons <laughs> after that is kind of what it led to. Uh, by and large, the fact that he's still on the payroll until 2027, 28. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, there's not a lot of just. I mean, you obviously aren't a GM in the NHL for twenty-five years if you're making a bunch of bad trades. So this brings it to the good side of things, which I think is important for people to remember. Now they may have happened a little long, like further back, prior to the Cup run, but. We all know the Forsberg one, number one on the list. This is written by Nick Keezer, of course, over there at Nashville Hockey Now. Forsberg for Martin Nerat and Michael Lada. That was uh, April 3rd, 2013. That was the trade that I could argue began the modern era of Preds hockey, right? Like ha- acquiring Forsberg. Martin Nerat, I, I don't think I remembered this, but like he had already told the team, like, I didn't want to be here anymore. So you're working to move a player that you don't have a lot of leverage with in that situation. That's number one. And so I think you could argue the Forsberg move, acquiring him as a prospect who'd been drafted the year before in the first round, like that is the, we're going to get to a lot of signature moves here because the big ones have worked out. The big name players have worked out for David Poyle in, in the trades, but none bigger than Forsberg, of course. Yeah, no, that was, I, I, there, there were a lot, there's a lot more positive trades than there were negative trades, I think. And I'm sure Nick probably had more fun writing this than Clay had writing his, but <laughs> But fleecing, and we can call this a fleecing because Martin Erat did next to nothing for the Capitals. Michael Latta did next to nothing for the Capitals. And Philip Forsberg is arguably the best forward in Predators history. So, I mean, it's hard to to say that any other trade should be above this just because of the player Philip Forsberg became and just how little Martin Erat really did. And look, he was he was a 20-goal, 50-point player. So I, I'm not faulting the Capitals for making the trade. Because if that's if that's what they think what they thought they were getting when they made the trade, he would have been an excellent reinforcement for the for the playoffs. It just turned out that after Martin Erat mentally checked out in Nashville, he also mentally checked out of the NHL too. So it just yeah, right. I mean, look, Forsberg, five hundred and eleven points. There's not much more you can say about the guy. He he's just he's one of the best players in team history. He's probably going to be the best forward in team history until Kemmel or someone you know passes him or whatever. But it, this trade just looks so lopsided. And of course, we have the the value of hindsight looking back at this but right this trade just looks so lopsided based off of of the of the two divergent paths these two players have taken since the trade it's almost amusing to think about now that david poyle got philip forsberg for as little as he did there's two really interesting ways to evaluate the trades on the positive side maybe even a third because sometimes it's like there's like like with erat there's sort of a your, your hand is forced a little bit like with ryan ellis his hand was forced a little bit with matthias ekholm you're trying to dump guys at the deadline, trying to rebuild for a new GM. You're kind of forced a little bit. So there's there's an element of risk involved that I think you need to factor in with this. So if you're asking about like which trade netted you the most for the least, it's clearly Philip Forsberg. 
That's clearly number one. And number two on on, on this list was an eighth round pick, or mm-hmm. you tr- you trade an AHL defenseman for an eighth round pick, and you draft Pekarene. Like, of course, from a value standpoint, that's one or two on this list. But what was what what was he risking? He wasn't risking anything, and he stumbled yeah. on Pe- and he stumbled on Pekarene. So there's no argument with how good of a trade that is. But I think, and again, that was 2004, so you got to go way back. Um, to me, and we'll get to trading for Mike Fisher. We'll, we'll get to trading for Steve Sullivan. We'll get to trading Tanner Janot, frankly, was impressive. I think, I mean, I, honestly, dumping P.K. Subban and dumping Ryan Ellis when he did, those are risky moves. Those are big moves to, to trade salary. Uh, so number three on the list, January 6th, 2016, you trade the fourth overall pick and a rising superstar in Seth Jones for Ryan Johansson. That's number three. And then I think this one should be number one. I think it should be number one because of the risk involved. Just a couple of months later, June 29th, 2016, you trade Shea Weber for PK Subban. I, I, from a risk standpoint, to have the balls to trade Shea Weber knowing that you are going to get the type of blowback you're going to get from fans, real smart hockey people, even in the short term, reacted pretty positively to that trade for David Poyle. They were like, dude, this is a smart move, an aging player. Nobody imagined the resurgence he was going to have for a star defenseman in PK Subban. Like smart, smart, smart hockey people like had to calm me down that day, (laughs) you know, because I was, I hadn't covered the team. I wasn't covering the team at the time. And I was like, wait, David, David Poyle did what? And and I think if you add risk involved to the Johansson trade and the Shea Weber trade, man, it, like the balls it takes to pull those trades off and for them both to have led directly to a Stanley Cup playoff, Stanley Cup final uh, appearance. I, I think you could argue those are one and two because of the risk involved. Yeah, no, I mean, you have a valid point. There wasn't really a lot of risk in trading Martin Erat for Philip Forsberg. There wasn't really... There was no risk in trading Timo Helbling, the AHL defenseman, to <laughs> Tampa for the sixth round pick that, or for the eighth round pick that was used to to draft Pecorine. The, the and look the the Seth Jones Ryan Johansson trade. I feel like that, and I still I have no evidence to support this. This is just a feeling <laughs> I have from talking to David Poyle. I think that was the most difficult trade David Poyle has ever had to make in his professional career because of how much he loves Seth Jones and how how good of a defenseman he thought Seth Jones was going to be. And again, I have there's no empirical evidence to back this up. I don't think I can prove it, but unless yeah. David Poe just outright admits it. But I do think this was the most difficult trade for him to pull the trigger on because of how the potential Seth Jones had and that he's shown in the two and a half-ish seasons that he was here, trading for Ryan Johansson. And look, there were there was debates when this trade was made whether Ryan Johansson was a true number one center. I think he he filled that role in Columbus. He clearly wasn't the same player in Nashville as he was in Columbus. But up until that point, Ryan Johansson was the biggest name this team had ever had playing in center ice. And and it's it's one of those trades that looking back, I think it I think for what it was and when it happened, it was a win for all all involved. The Blue Jackets got a franchise defenseman that they they were able to build around. Then you know trade him to Chicago. Uh, two seasons ago, Nashville got the number one center that that it needed, got to the Stanley Cup final. And I, I do think if Ryan Johansson had not gotten injured in the conference final, they they the Predators would have won the Stanley Cup. I just don't think you were going to stop that momentum. The only thing that was going to stop that momentum was the injuries to Fiala 
and to Johansson that year. So yeah. uh, that that was a ballsy move by Poyle to do that. And I think he I think he had to swallow his pride because he did not want to part with Seth Jones. As far as the Shea Weber for PK Subban deal, that takes a lot of balls too. I mean, you're looking at and everybody. I don't. I don't think you would find anybody that lives in Nashville that will ever say a bad word about Shea Weber. Nor should you. <laughs> right. But I don't think there was anyone that like. There's been points and times where people are like, "Oh, Roman Yossi does too much offensively. He's always skating up. He's out of position. All this stuff." Like there was nobody that would nitpick anything that Shea Weber did. The guy did no wrong. He was beloved by all. He was really the first kind of face of the franchise that people knew who he was. Like you'd walk down Broadway and you'd see, I don't know how many Shea Weber jerseys trading someone that's as beloved as he was for someone as polarizing as PK Subban was. That was a risky move. It worked out, got him to a cup final. PK Subban brought the Predators into the national spotlight. Suddenly they're on NBC sports and all everyone's talking about him and stuff like that. But that was a really risky move, especially because that one had more potential, I think, to blow up in his face than the Jones and Joe or Jones and Johansson trade, just because of the yep. of the personality PK Subban has. Luckily, they made it work while he was here. But people, for whatever reason, just love to hate on PK Subban for no reason. We saw it with Mike Milbury. We saw it with other people that just had a problem with his personality because oh, you his think, personality was almost no, bigger than the NHL. You think it's you think it's no reason, huh? I I, I think I can come up with a reason. Well, <laughs> pretty obvious one. <laughs> I get it. I get it. But <laughs> oh, still, he's, a, I, he's a loud, outsp- out loud, outspoken black man. <laughs> but you know what? If, you're, call if, a spade you, a spade. if you if you can't embrace that, then oh, I, I, agree. Oh, I, oh, I, I can't I help it, you. No, I think it's absurd. I thought it was great. The, I, I will say the crowded press boxes and having to fight with Canadian media in the locker room after PK Subban got here was a little <laughs> annoying. But after that died down, it was great because more people were talking about this team. More people were interested oh, in predators and checking the standings and seeing where they were. P.K. Subban brought brought notoriety to this franchise that it had never seen before. Now, it was it, a great it, move from a PR standpoint. It was a great move from what he did on the ice and how well he and Matias Ekholm played together. It, and it worked out beautifully for all involved. He he shot the moon with his bow and arrow on the first night at, at, at Bridgestone Arena of his career. Like, listen, I, I... You know what you're getting when you make that trade, though. Yes, yes. No, there's zero question. Uh, listen, it's number one for me. It is number one for me because I agree with you. If you're saying like, who are the best players that the Predators, that David Poyle ever traded away? It is Seth Jones and Shea Weber. Those are the best two players that they ever traded away. Shea Weber would be, is would be, and, and if he's a Hall of Famer, probably goes in as a Predator. He's arguably the greatest national Predator of all time if he stays for five or six more years since that trade. they do. I don't know if they go to the Cup without P.K. Subban. I don't know if, if Smashville becomes a thing without PK Subban and to and to trade the guy who scored 20 goals and had 51 points the year before after like seven straight years of being top five in the Norris like to trade the guy who's your captain the face of your franchise and on path on path to be the greatest player in franchise history to do that in the middle of the summer and to go get a guy that did so much more than just hockey for your team but also did all the hockey <laughs> like it, and and I love the fact that PK Subban pissed off the old white people in like Toronto and Montreal and Chicago and New York and like the old hockey guard couldn't handle PK Subban. Uh, like that's just I, that's so 1985. Like I don't even know how to I don't even know what to say about that. So a, a quick funny story. I remember it was in his first year when he got traded here. Uh, I did a radio hit with a Canadian uh, radio station. 
And one of the first questions they asked me about PK Subban was, how is he perceived here? And I was like, everybody loves him. And they were so taken aback by the fact that no one here like wanted to just go ruffle feathers and start fights <laughs> with PK Subban for no reason. I was like, he's great. The media love him. I'm like, the fans love him. He's he's a really good player. Like, no one has anything bad to say about him. And they're like, well, what about this and this and this? And I'm like, yeah, we don't we don't see that here. There, there's no issue. Well, we're we're not because and and some of this I actually will give credit to Sean Henry and the Preds organization and everybody involved. Like they leaned into non traditional. And when they leaned into non-traditional, P.K. Subban fit perfectly. And so to lean into non-traditional and have a P.K. Subban type of personality on your team, and oh, by the way, go to the Stanley Cup final in the first year after the trade, it, it, there is nothing that, I, like, there's no value like the Forsberg trade or like trading an AHL defenseman for Pecorine and having him as, like, you can't argue the value there. Giving up nothing for the best of all time. <laughs> it's, there's no argument there. Like, just think through what David Poyle must have been thinking by himself the night before. Sitting in an office by himself, the nice classic cab, and he's sitting in a, a, a an office with many leather-bound books, and his desk smells of rich mahogany, and he's sitting there, and he's like, I am going to trade the greatest player in this franchise's history and the captain of the team for P.K. Subban. Like, do you... Like after going through the, the contract dispute that they went through, right? Like to to put like it was to keep him here was an extraordinary job by Poyle, even if the contract ended up being terrible. It, I just can't imagine what's going through his head that night, the night before, or the minutes before he pulls the trigger, or God, I can't believe what this press release is gonna do to people. <laughs> like it's just I, the the but the absolute sheer cojones to pull off that trade is I don't know. It's like worth all the tourist trades combined like that. That is because like I don't like again, we can go through like trading Ryan Ellis at the right time. Pretty good move. Uh, trading Matias Ekholm probably might, might be a pretty good player for Edmonton for the foreseeable future. You probably had to make the move. Getting five draft picks for Tanner Janot. Pretty good move. Acquiring Mike Fisher. Pretty good move. Like acquiring Steve Sullivan. Pretty good move. Uh, like they, we can go on and on. I don't, you know, Nick listed uh, trading up to get David Legwan at number two on his list. I don't agree with that one, but I, there's there's a top four here for me, and it's two that are extraordinary value, and it's two that just are the riskiest moves ever, and they both led directly within six months of each other, led directly to a Stanley Cup final appearance. I don't. I, yeah, and I, I'm I'm in the same boat too. Love Nick. I, I probably wouldn't have put the David Legwan trade at number five. I think Mike Fisher had more of an impact on this team than David Legwan did and directly led to more, more wins and getting closer to a championship than Legwan did. But also I get it. David Legwan held all your, your franchise records until Roman Yosti and, and Forsberg started take, like taking shots at him and stuff. So I, I get it. He was the most prominent Preds forward in, in, in team history. So I'm not, I'm not terribly upset with it, but I think the Mike Fisher trade probably, I would have put that at number five over, over the Legwan trade and stuff. And look, I, I get it. The the Subban for for Weber trade, I think, arguably, could be number one on this list because of the star power of the two players that were traded, the fact that it was one for one, where each player was at each point in their career, what they did after they were traded, just the ramifications that this had across the NHL. Like I'll I'll never forget. I had just graduated from grad grad school at MTSU. Now I was at the Mapco filling up my gas tank when I heard that this trade was announced over the radio on 3HL and I did not believe it. I literally sat in my car. I'm like that. Dude, 
like i'm like there's no way i'm, I'm getting punked someone messed with my radio station there's no way this just happened i got Dude. him on the phone went to espn went to nhl confirmed it with two or three different reputable sites and i'm like okay this really happened and i sat in my car probably for 15 minutes at the gas pump just trying to contemplate and just put the pieces together in my head of like what does this mean and did this really just happen I was um, I was sitting. Uh, this is this is the difference between this trade and all the other trades. I know exactly where I was when I found out. I, yeah. I was I was sitting at my desk at Athlon Sports at the time, working in the office, and there's another really really huge hockey fan in the office at the time that I worked with for a long time. He's a Buffalo Sabers fan, and I remember seeing the news break on Twitter and standing up and walking over to him, and being like, "What on earth are we doing?" But I remember exactly where I was sitting. There's none of these other trades that I know exactly where I was sitting when they happened. Like I, th- and it's some of it's because of, of my time in my life, and like you said, you were of age to be like kind of interested in it, and I certainly was as well. But like, I, I, there's no other trade in franchise history that you know exactly where you were the moment that that you found out that Shea Weber was traded away. And and here's the other thing: none of these trades shook up an entire country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like trading PK Subban away from Montreal shook up the entire country. To your point, Canada about, still hasn't recovered, guys. To, to your point about you know the Canadian interview, like it, it just Nashville didn't know any better that that's what PK Subban was. That this you know that the old kind of stodgy guard didn't love the, his antics or whatever. But like we didn't know any better, so we just embraced him. And yeah. but like you know where you were when you found out that Shea Weber was traded. You don't know where you were when you found out that. You know, even even acquiring Mike Fisher, like I don't none of that stuff registers in the same way that yeah. trading Shea Weber. And again, uh, I, I would I, I we probably should have added this trading Victor Arvidsson for a third and second round pick. Arvidsson scored 59 points last year, 26 goals, 20 goals the year before that. You could argue that was not one of his best trades, but I understood why he was doing it. Right. A smaller player seemed like he had lost a step, had only scored 25 goals total in the previous two seasons combined thought he was maybe you know injured you were going to have to pay him and you got you got rid of him but you know that probably wasn't a trade that worked out for David Poyle but you know I, I don't and know I, and I think I think Clay did a good job with with the ones that he picked too because like you said there there weren't a lot of ones that were just that really set the franchise back that were they're glaringly like oh this needs to be on the list right and I think you get to the point like you just did with Arvidsson where you're trying to convince yourself of why it could be on the list I think you're getting to the point where it's like okay like yeah. We've exhausted all of these. Like, yes, there are other ones that you could make a case for, but I think I think he did a good job of picking out the ones that the Wayne Simmons one may be a little bit questionable, but I think yeah. I think the other four are are all solid choices. And that's that's the, the good thing. It's the dead season. Like there's nothing <laughs> going on in the offseason right now. We're trying to come up with content for you guys. Yes, oh, you, don't do don't you don't you dare apologize for doing it. You could you could write like I wouldn't be I wouldn't have been offended if Nick would have put the, the Weber Subban trade number one. You could argue since the Forsberg trade is number one, like because he got more with less because of how the impact Forsberg has had over sure. the totality of his career. Like sure. all this stuff is just meant to be in good fun. So hopefully if you guys are reading this stuff, you're enjoying it because I I as I'm editing these stories, I'm sitting there and they're making some good points. And I'm like, oh wow, I didn't even think about that. And it's fun to take a, a walk down memory lane and just yes. kind of reflect yes. on where the predators have come ever since David Poyle took Look, over. You do not have to apologize to me for doing a deep dive onto each part of David Poyle's career, because we are going to need to have it all cataloged because it's going to be this crazy debate for decades. And I think eventually, like I said earlier, I think eventually we are all going to land on like what an extraordinary career. I think that's like, I understand why it's hard to do that now, 
If Barry Trotz goes on and wins multiple Stanley Cups with Kemmel and Evangelista and Askarov, David Poyle's <laughs> legacy will be drastically looked at differently than it is now. I mean, he so in 2004, he acquired Steve Sullivan from the Blackhawks for a second round pick. And then, or sorry, two second round picks. And he ended up getting 263 points in 317 games out of Steve Sullivan. You mentioned the Mike Fisher trade. They, they traded a, a first round pick for Mike Fisher to Ottawa and I think a third round pick the next year. And he ended up helping the team to a cup final and was a captain and yeah. you know one, one of the most beloved players in franchise history and 241 points in 429 games. Like we can keep going, like doing this exercise, whether it was the building phase with Barry Trotz, whether it was, you know, build like the moves he made to get to that cup, which is Johansson and, and, and Subban even the bad trade with tourists, the trades afterward, the trades this summer to to get rid of all the the pieces to build assets for Barry Trotz. If you start to do these exercises, which you guys are going to do with draft picks, draft classes, and free agents, which might be a little different, but if you start with the trades, it is hard not to look at his 25-year career and in the trades department say the dude was a master. Like it, it sure, you're gonna have some misses. But to take the big swings that he did with the big risks that he did, giving up the biggest pieces in franchise history to go get himself what he got. I, I don't know. Like, I don't know how you don't do this exercise right here today that we've just done with the trades and not be like, damn, what what a career by David Poyle. I, you know, so I, I think that's going to happen more times than not through this process this summer is what I think is going to happen. Yeah. And I think as new information becomes available, a la Ryan Ellis may have to retire. Now that trade looks really good for, for David Boyle and the Predators. I don't think you can argue any way that the Predators were the only winners in that situation because Nolan Patrick, who went to Vegas, wasn't given a qualifying offer. He's a free agent. Ryan Ellis might be retiring. Yeah, Philip Myers was traded for nothing, basically. But Cody Glass could potentially be a top six forward for this franchise. Like That yeah, trade got- looks really good now. In five years, that trade could look even better. Yep. yep. You got $6 million off the books with an injured player that never really played even though I, I loved Ryan, as as a hockey fan, I loved Ryan Ellis. Loved that Ryan was Ellis. a Bill Belichick move by David Boyle, yes. if I've ever seen one. Yes. Knowing when to sell your players and get rid of them before something bad happens like that, like that that's classic Bill Belichick. And and honestly, he kind of did the same thing with Subban. Like, yeah. he got rid of Subban for basically nothing, got like a second round pick out of the deal. Subban dumped, wasn't really great in New Jersey, yeah. Yeah, he dumped his salary and Jer- Jersey, I think, ate the whole thing. And then he now he's a now he's a good analyst <laughs> so so uh i mean it is what it is i think it, again this is going to be an important exercise for people we're going to be here for you nashville hockey now is here for you as well jaspers is always here for you so make sure you hang out at jaspers of course they'll watch uh, your kids they'll watch your kids jaspers <laughs> they'll watch your kids the next evolution of the babysitter uh, over there on west end michael where can people find you you can find me on twitter or x or whatever we're calling it at mg sports underscore and then you can also check our work on the Nashville Hockey Now website and Twitter at NSH Hockey Now. There you have it. Appreciate your time. Appreciate you guys listening. Go to Jaspers, everybody. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and follow along as we evaluate David Poyle, hopefully uh, a little bit more than just like, ah, that guy sucks, (laughs) (laughs) which is how it's happening on X all the time. Uh, Other than that, share the show. We do appreciate it. Thanks for hanging out. We'll talk to you guys next week. This has been the Gold Standard here on the 440 Sports Network.